We are in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, and we got a whole bunch to do today, so uh, hopefully you're ready to go. If you don't have a Bible, we have them available for you, and we'd love to give you one. Uh, they're just available right outside the door, and someone will bring one if you need one. But we are in the middle, as I said, of chapter 8, and you may recall that the people, the Jewish people, they've returned to Jerusalem, and they, now they've begun to kind of settle in to what it's going to be like to live in this particular city. They had to rebuild their temple. We looked at that. They rebuilt the walls of the city so they'd be a safe place. Then, as we saw in chapter 7, they sort of assess, okay, what's the city like? What are the homes like? What needs work? Where you know, do people need to return to the places of their ancestors and so on? And in chapter 7, work had begun on those homes. And so now we are at a place finally. It took all this time to get here in the book, but now we're at a place finally where the people can do what God brought them back to, drew them back to Jerusalem to do. And that is to worship and serve Him. And so we saw in the opening verse uh, of chapter 8, you can look there, it says now that everything is kind of ready to go, the people are gathered now in an open square of the city. It said it was, they were near the water gate. And they gather there so that they can have the Word of God read and explained to them by Ezra. And so they, I, said, I kidded around that they woke up, uh, they went and they woke up Ezra early in the morning. They said, hey man, come on, we hire you for this. Get out here and teach us the Word. And so we saw there in verse 1 of chapter 8 that that is the case here. And again, these aren't folks that are being dragged to church. These are folks that are delighted to go to church. They get up early, it says, and they go find Ezra and said, teach us the word. They approach Ezra and they said, read it to us. And then we learn that for six hours, they do that. I was delighted when Will prayed today during his prayer. And he said, Lord, just for the next couple of hours. And I said, all right, I have freedom for two hours today. But they come and for six hours, it says that they remain attentive and dialed into the Word of God as it's being imparted to them. And, and I made the point previously, but I think it's important that when we come uh, ready and we come eager to receive the Word of the Lord, the Lord shows up in those particular times. And He's always faithful to meet us. And so whether it's we're gathering here or we're going to our home fellowships on uh, a weekday or a weeknight, or it's just that time with us alone, and we come ready and we say, Lord, this is Your Word Speak to me through your word. I'm excited to hear what you're going to say and apply it. Something happens when we come to God's living word, ready to hear and apply what he has to say. And so as we said, for six hours, the people stood and listened to the word as it was read to them. So I thought it would be fun if today's service, we would just stand through the service. So never mind. All right. But as they stood, as they listened, God began to use his word. And look what it says there in verse 9. God began to break them. And that's what the Word of God is supposed to do. Hearing God, here these people are, hearing God's Word, maybe, remember, for the first time really in their lives. You know, they heard verses quoted by their grandpops or grandmoms and so on. But the first time perhaps in their lives, sitting and hearing the Word of God open to them, the people began to see a couple of things. Number one, they began to see just how good God was. Oh my gosh, Lord, you're so good. You're so kind. You're so merciful. And so forgiving. And at the same time, as they're looking at God's repeated acts of kindness to them, how God protected them, how God provided for the people, the Jewish people, how God led the people, how God blessed the people, at the same time they're looking at that picture of their Heavenly Father, they're also seeing their fathers and their response to God's goodness. And so while God, while God is repeatedly demonstrating His goodness and His kindness to them, what they're seeing about their fathers are 
that they continually rejected that God and rebelled against that God and disobeyed that God. They ignored, if you will, God's kindness. And so as the word now is brought to them, it's the clarity of God's word that begins to bring a conviction to them. And that's what the word of God is supposed to do. So as these guys are reading and studying the word, they're coming to understand who God is, who God was, who God will be. They're they're understanding the nature and the character of God. And they're also discovering man's depravity. And not only man's depravity, their own depravity, their own tendency to go astray. Have you discovered that about yourself? Good. Uh, you have. I, I can see most of the heads are shaking. Yeah, uh, the more we purpose, God, I'm, I'm in now. I'm in, and I'll never go astray. The more we find we wander astray, or at least we realize it a little bit more. And so here are these guys. They're looking at the Word. They're seeing man's tendency to go astray. And what do they do? Well, we learned that they begin to mourn. They begin to weep over their sin. God is so good. We are so far off. And they begin to mourn over that. God is breaking them and he's using his words to do so. But remember, they're not allowed to mourn. Remember the passage says, we looked at it last two weeks ago, whatever. This is not a day of mourning, they said. So they get in trouble for mourning about their sin. I'm kidding a little bit here. But this was supposed to be a day of feasting. So we look in verse 2. And it says now that these guys, they gather on the first day of the seventh month. Now, the first day of the seventh month coincides with what you and I might be aware of. We know of today. It's called Rosh Hashanah. And that's the beginning of the Jewish New Year. So here we are. We're in the seventh month of sort of this calendar. But in the religious calendar, it's the first day of the year. And Rosh Hashanah coincides with the Old Testament feast, which is called the Feast of Trumpets. There's about seven Old Testament feasts. One of those is the Feast of Trumpets. If you want to read about it, you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 23. But these feasts are feasts. They're not fast. Fasts would be mourning. Feast would be celebration. And so these leaders come to them and they say, no, today's not a day of mourning. We didn't bring you to church today so that you could mourn today. We brought you to celebrate. Today's a day of celebration. And so they're rebuked, if you will, for mourning. And so in obedience, we like that, the people do as they're told. So they start celebrating. They start throwing stuff on the fire and they have barbecues. They invite their friends, their neighbors, and everybody comes together and they're going to celebrate this feast of trumpets. And so we see in verse 12, look at that. It says, now all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Well, that brings us now to where we're going to start today, verse 13. Verse 13, through the end of the chapter, it's going to continue to look at the celebration of the seventh month. Uh, So I pointed out that there's seven feasts in the Jewish calendar. Three of those feasts takes place during the seventh month. You can read about them. Again, Leviticus 23, also uh, Numbers chapter 29, talk about the three feasts that are going to take place in the seventh month. The first one, as we saw, Rosh Hashanah. That's the first day of the seventh month, Feast of Trumpets. Then on the tenth day, the Jews celebrate what we call uh, Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement, tenth day of the seventh month. And then beginning on the fifteenth day and running through the twenty-first day of the seventh month, the Jews celebrate what is called the Feast of Booths. And another name sometimes in our versions for the Feast of Booths is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now in from this time period, the recent history of the Jewish people, they're not really celebrating these feasts. 
They may be aware of them, particularly the older folks that had been brought into captivity. They may remember some of these, but they're not really celebrating the Feast of Trumpets or the Day of Atonement because the temple was destroyed or the Feast of Booths. And if you look down to verse 17, it says, And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, they made their booths, they lived in their booths. But notice it says, Because from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. So collectively as a nation, they hadn't celebrated this Feast of Booths for close to a thousand years is is the point that is being made there. Now, did they have a little bit of celebration here and there? Probably so. But as a nation, they hadn't celebrated it for over a thousand years. But now they're going to because the Word of God teaches them they are to do so. And we'll talk about that. Let's read the whole section, starting in verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses... And the people with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. They would proclaim this, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. And so the people, they went out and they brought them and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now notice how the section begins. Verse 13, it says that the heads of the fathers' houses and the priests and the Levites, that they come together to study the words of the law. It says that there in verse 13. So here are the spiritual leaders, the priests, the Levites, the heads of the homes, and what are they doing? They are digging into the Word of God to find out what the Word of God says and to learn how they can apply it. The leaders are doing that. And what they discover is that for a thousand years that there's this command of God to have this feast that pretty much went ignored by the nation. And so most of these people, including these leaders, they were probably even unlikely that this feast existed because they didn't have access really to the Word of God. But now these leaders... They've been studying the word with Ezra. Now these leaders know that as leaders, one day they're going to give an account of their leadership. And they realize immediately, you know, the excuse, well, we didn't know about that feast, isn't going to be good enough. They know immediately that the excuse, well, nobody else did the feast before, so that's why we didn't do the feast. They know that that is not going to be good enough. None of those are going to be acceptable excuses because God has revealed His will to them in his word, and as leaders, it's their responsibility to dig into his word, to find out what God's will is, and then to present that to the people that they are given charge over. And so that's what they do. Verse 13, they begin to dig into the word, they learn the word, and then as we see in the verses that follow, they begin to apply it. First to their own lives, and then to those that they are charged with leading. So again, look at 14. They find that it's written in the law, commanded by Moses, that the people should make booths and go out into the wilderness there, and so on and so forth. And again, those instructions are recorded right there in the Bible for you and I, Leviticus 23, Numbers chapter 29. 
So I appreciate this so much because here are these leaders. And they're sitting, if you will, in sort of a leader's Bible study with Ezra. Maybe there's 10 of them, 12 of them, whatever it may be. Ezra is their teacher. They're working through the, the books of Moses at the very least, those first five books. And they must get to either Leviticus or Numbers. And they read what is written for us there in verse 15. You can see the quotation marks coming from either of those two places. And they read it, and one of them says to the other, you thinking what I'm thinking? We should do this. And they're like, yeah. That's... And Ezra's like, ah, yeah, they're getting it. This is exciting. And so the people there, because God's word instructed them, the leaders, to do it, they do it. And as we said, these guys, they come eager to hear the word of God, to learn the word of God, and to apply the word of God. And God blesses that. And so if you want God's word to change you, then you need to obey what God directs and instructs in his word. And that's exactly what these guys are doing. So we look at verse 16. It says, We read, So the people went out, and they brought them, and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof, in their courts, and the courts of the house of God, in the squares, uh, and so on. And I love that opening word of verse 16. It says, So. You know, I, I just appreciate that so much. And you're like, I don't get it. Well, I'm going to tell you. God said that they should get branches from the various leafy trees, so the people went out and got branches from the various leafy trees. God said to make booths or little shacks for themselves that they would be able to live in for a week. And so what do the people do? They make shacks for themselves so that the people can live in. God said, you know what, you're going to move your whole family out there for a week to live in this. And so they do it. Because God's Word said it, they do it. And there's no process of, well, I don't know if that's for our day or if that makes any sense, you know, now, or that's just silly, or that's uncomfortable, you know, back then it was, must have been fun for them, or, or whatever. God said it, and that settles it. He said to do it, so they do it. And it's just simple obedience. This isn't that hard. Uh, let's be honest. The Word of God is not that challenging for us. The vast majority of times that we have a problem with the Word of God is because we don't want to be changed by the Word of God. And so simple obedience. And so these guys here, they just simply do it. Now let's talk about the Feast of Booths for a moment. The Feast of Booths was designed to remind the Jewish people of how God provided for their fathers and preserved their fathers during the 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. Now you may not be familiar with the 40 years. When the children of Israel came out of slavery, they wandered around the desert for 40 years until they actually came in to their promised land. That was Moses led them out of slavery. So during a period of 40 years, God is providing for them. And the Feast of Booths is designed to remind them of that. It reminds the people that he miraculously delivered the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. It reminds the people as they began to make their way to the Promised Land. Questions like, well, where are we going to get food? God's going to provide you food. Okay, Where are we going to get drink? We're in the desert. Where are we going to get something to drink? God will provide you with something to drink. But how are we going to know where to go? God will lead you, and God will direct you. And the Feast of Booze was designed to remind the people of all of those things. Now, I have to wonder, or I have to suspect, that it, it was particularly poignant for these fellows because they kind of know the wandering experience. They, or their moms, their dads, they were just in captivity and wandered, if you will, back to this promised land, just like their forefathers did. And they come back to the land as well. So it has to seem like this. I know this experience. We saw God provide. We saw him deliver. We saw him lead and bring us here. Because it, it sort of echoes their own experiences. Here they are returning captives 
that have experienced the protection and the provision and the leading of God. Now look at verse 17. It says, And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, they made booze and they lived in their booze, for from the days of Joshua it had not been celebrated. Now a portion, or not a portion, kind of the aspect of the celebration of the Feast of Booths is every day, seven days, the people would come to sort of a central place. They're out in, their, in the fields, if you will, outside of the walls of the city. They would come to sort of a central place and the Word of God would be read to them and then various sacrifices would take place as well. And again, you can read Numbers 29. It gives a very specific day by day. These are the sacrifices I'm looking for on these particular days. And as we said, it's a seven-day feast. So it begins on the 15th. It goes to the 21st or so. Now, as we continue in chapter 9, notice what happens. The feast is over. That's going to end on the 21st, 22nd day of that particular month. But notice how chapter 9 begins. It says, On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So we are done the Feast of Booths, and now we're moving into uh, a period of mourning and fasting. And so when it says there that they're fasting in sackcloth with earth on their heads, that's what they're going to do. They're going to mourn and fast. That's what they wanted to do three weeks earlier, but they weren't allowed to do. Remember they got in trouble for wanting to mourn? Well, so now, like, are, are we done with the feast? Okay, now can we cry over our sin? Yes, you may cry over your sin now. And so these guys here are going uh, to do that here. The fasting, that's designed to demonstrate sort of a lowliness and a humility. The sackcloth, that's sort of like a rough burlap bag. You remember at the school picnics, you would have the potato sack contest or whatever? Well, imagine that as your underwear, you know, and the clothes you're going to wear. That, they'd cut a couple holes in there, pull it up, tie it around, and that's what they would wear. Not, not very pleasant. That was designed to demonstrate their poverty of spirit. The dirt on their heads, earth on their heads, demonstrates mourning. So here are these people. Their attitude is brokenness. It's humility. And a brokenness and a humility toward God, but also toward one another. Nobody's caring about, does this look okay on me? You know, Nobody's caring about that. No one is worried about the appearance that they have before others. But they're coming before God, even though others may be gathered around and they're mourning and they're broken over their sin. And what caused that? What caused the mourning? What caused the brokenness? It was the Word of God. It was when they gathered at the beginning of chapter 8 before Ezra, and they said, read the Word of God to us. And God, as the Word of God was read, read to them, God used the Word of God to expose them. As we've said, the Word of God is living and active. Now, not talking about the Word of God, the actual Word of God, and that's why you can just sit with the Word and you could read something you've read a hundred times, but if your heart is open and you say, God, you know what? Teach me. God will teach you. God will use the Word and He does that. And so here are people that have been exposed by the Word of God and so now they are repentant before God. And that has to be the order of things that God, through His Word, reveals His holiness and our sinfulness. And our response then is repentance. You know, sometimes I think we try to drum up repentance. You know, maybe it's Communion Sunday or something. We say, all right, I got to go and I got to be real repentant there because it's Communion Sunday or it's Good Friday or something. I remember we were at a youth group event many years ago, and this was an event that the kids would look forward to for years to come. When they were little kids, they can't wait till they get in high school because they're going to be able to go to Fun in the Sun, which was this beach thing that we used to do. 
down in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. And one of the young girls, she was a freshman that particular year, so this was the first year she was going to be there, she pulled one of the leaders aside and she said, is tonight the night that we all cry and repent over our sins? And the friend was like, maybe. What's God doing in your heart? You know, but there was this sense of it's the last night. Everybody has to mourn on the last night for their sins or whatever. You can mourn on the first night. What's God doing? You know, but there's this tendency, it seems, sometimes we want to drum up feelings of repentance. The reality is this. God brings repentance. You can't create repentance. God has to bring repentance. And he does so as he reveals himself through his word. And then our response to that is simply, you know what, God, you're right. And, you know, a big name for that, not, not that big, uh, it's the word confession. When we say, God, you are right, this action of mine, this attitude of my heart is sin, that's confession. God brings conviction, repentance, and we respond, and it's confession, which is exactly what we see here. Notice what verses 2 and 3 say of chapter 9. It says, And the Israelites, they separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood up in their place. They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day and for another quarter of the day, they made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. Confession, it's simply agreeing with God. Again, it's saying, God, you're right. Many of us are familiar with the New Testament verse in 1 John that says, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word, confess there, is a Greek word which can be translated to say the same thing as. And so again, the point is that God is laying that on your heart and you're responding and saying, God, you're right. That is sin. What you just told me was sin is sin. So confession is agreeing with God. No excuses. No, but God, but God, you, none of that. No arguing. Well, you don't understand what it's like to be me. None of that. No justifying. Well, God, I did that because you, none of that stuff. It's just simply saying, you know what, God, you're right. I agree with you. I agree with your Holy Spirit. I agree with the Word of God. And again, if you read and meditate on the Word of God for any length of time soon, you will begin to realize just how far, fall sh far short you fall of God's holy standard. You know, as Jay pointed out last week, sin is simply missing the mark. And your sin may not be as bad as my sin or vice versa, but again, does that really matter? Because sin is missing the mark. And both of us have missed the mark, the, the mark of God's holy standard. And it's the Word of God that reveals those truths. And it is upon that realization of the truth of God that repentance and confession comes. And, and that's the order of things. And again, I think the order of things is key. So again, going back to chapter 7, the people were hungry for the Word. They went out and sought out their teacher, Ezra chapter 7, that he would read the Word to them and explain the Word to them. They were moved to repentance. They were broken. They were mourning over their sins and the sins of their fathers. Told, no, nope, you're not allowed to mourn. You've got to celebrate the feast. They do that. And now they come back to the Word of God again. The feasts are over. They come back to the Word of God again. And they're looking, if you will, for the next step of obedience. All right, God, what's next? What do you want for us next to, to do? Now, here's the thing I find interesting. This is really a spiritual revival that is going on. You've got thousands of people that God is doing a great work within their heart. He's revealing himself through his word. The people are lining up to come to church every day because they want to hear the word of God a little more. It's not like, do we have to go again? I remember when I was little and Christmas would fall like on a Friday. And so we'd go to church with my parents on a Friday. And then Sunday comes around and my mom's like, all right, get up. 
We're going to church. I'm like, we just went. You're making me go again? You know, this doesn't seem right. And you'd have to go back again. But these guys, they're like, we get to go again? This is great. They're going every day. They want to hear the Word of God. They're excited about the Word of God. It seems to me that these guys are doing everything right. None of these guys are leaving church and going down to the bar and getting drunk. And they're not running around on their wives or doing any of these sorts of things. They're not watching things they shouldn't be watching. These guys are where they need to be with God. But notice what is happening. And this is so interesting. They're where they need to be with God. But what are they doing on the 24th day? They're mourning and repenting over their sin. Now, doesn't that seem to be contradictory? You would think the people that are going to mourn and repent over their sins are the ones that snuck off to the bar and got drunk. You would think they're the ones that are going to mourn and repent over their sins. Here are people that are at church as much as they can possibly be, and they're the ones that are mourning and repenting over their sin. Why? Why the need for repentance for guys that seem to be where they need to be? Well, I think the answer is something like this. Charles Spurgeon said this, repentance grows as faith grows. And the closer we get to the Lord, the more we're going to repent, not less. It's been said by another person, the closer I get to Jesus to find the less I sin, but the more that I repent. And we hear that, and it seems a bit contradictory. And I I guess it is contradictory. But if you've been walking with the Lord for a period of time, you know that's right on. And you know that that is truth. The reality of things. An outside observer may look at our lives and say, wow, you've really cleaned things up. You're really doing great. You know, look at you. You're so different. But internally, you know the truth of things. And you know how much further you need to go in your journey of being transformed into the image of Christ. You know, when Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6 when he caught a glimpse of the Holy God, you can go back and read Isaiah chapter 6, when he caught a glimpse of the Holy God, when he was close to God in that particular way, his response is recorded in verse 5. He says, woe is me. He says, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here he is closer than any one of us have ever been in relationship with God likely. I doubt any of you had these visions. And yet he's repenting over his sin. You remember in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter? There Peter is out in the water. He's out after a discouraging night of fishing. It says they caught nothing. They come out on the the shore. They're cleaning their nets of the junk that they did pick up. No fish in there, really. And the Lord instructs Peter and the others. He says, you know what? Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter reluctantly says, come on, man. I've been out all night. And, And he makes sure he tells Jesus that. I've been out all night. We caught nothing. This is going to be a waste of time. I added that last sentence or phrase. But he says, but because you say so, I'll do so. He goes out there. He catches a gazillion fish. It says that in the Bible, gazillion. He catches, he catches a million fish or whatever, and immediately no, he knows that Jesus is somebody different and that he's in the presence of God. And so here is Peter, like Isaiah, in the presence of God, closer perhaps than any one of us have ever been, And we read in Luke chapter 5 his response. It says, But when Simon Peter saw it, saw this catch, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So here he is. He's repenting. Something happens as we get close. I heard it explained this way. That if you're in a dimly lit room and that shirt you pick up off the floor, in a dimly lit room, that shirt looks pretty good, doesn't it? You're like, this will do. Sniff it. Yeah, this is fine. All right, this will make it here. But then you get out into the light 
And you bring it out into the light, and suddenly all of the spots and wrinkles of that shirt are exposed. And, and the same is true in our walk with Him. That the closer we get to, to the Lord, to the light, if you will, the more of our imperfections and sin is ex- are exposed. And that's, that's a good thing. Now, we might hear that and we might think, well, that's discouraging. But I would suggest to you, it should be just the opposite. That shouldn't be discouraging. That should be encouraging. Because that means that God is continuing to do a work in your life. He's continuing to transform you into His image. That He's changing every area of your life. And He's revealing His will for every single area of your life. And that's really good. And that's what we want. It's, it's painful sometimes. We just kind of got to leave me alone for a few days so I can kind of be my own person. But the Lord loves us too much to leave us alone. Well, this gathering here, it comes, as we said, just a couple of days after the joyful end of the celebration of the Feast of Booths. And they had drawn close to God during those three feasts of that month, and now God is drawing them even closer to Him. And so we read in verse 4, it says, Now on the stairs of the Levites stood these people, Joshua, Bani, Kadmael, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah. And they said, Stand up, and said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now this little phrase here, the stairs of the Levites, it's the only place it's mentioned in the Bible. I'm trying to figure out, what is the stairs? Does it lead up to the temple or something like that? It's not mentioned associated with the temple in any way. It's likely very similar to chapter 8, verse 4, where Ezra stood on that platform. It's likely connected to that in one way or another. So here are the leaders. They're standing up sort of on this platform so that they could address the people. And they begin, as they address the people, they direct the people. All right, everybody stand up. Don't you get up if you were, weren't paying attention. Like, why are we doing you know, We get up. You know, I, I drifted for a moment. Everybody stay where you are. So they say, everybody stand up. Because remember, they had fallen down in worship, the sackcloth throwing dirt on their heads and so on. And they're instructed to begin to bless and to praise the Lord. Now notice the proximity of the blessing and praise to their mourning and repentance. Okay? That's very key. That the repentance and the confession is happening in their lives, but the end of the repentance and confession is designed to be, it's designed to lead to blessing and praise and worship. It's not God's design that we remain broken over our sin but rather that in our brokenness, we come to God in repentance, we experience God's cleansing, and then we move on to the place where we're worshiping Him and blessing His name. And so here are these people, they were mourning, but now they're told, you know what, take that mourning, repent of it, confess your sin, and maybe they quoted 1 John a thousand years before it's written, they said, and God is faithful and just and will forgive you and will wash you, and worship Him for that. And so they lead the people in prayer. As we see, this is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. That's why Will gave me two hours today to talk to you about it. It's the longest recorded prayer in the Bible that these Levites lead. They were probably alternating, taking turns. There's about 10 of them that are listed. You know, one guy for a little bit, then the next guy. But however it came out across to the people, they begin by saying in verse 5, Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise you are the lord you alone and so what they're going to do here is they're going to give the people a reason to bless the name of god so bless the name of the lord okay why well i'm going to tell you why because he has been 
and then they go in, and that's what the prayer is going to explain. Notice how the prayer begins here. It begins by praising and exalting the Lord as the only Lord. It says, you, Lord, O Lord, alone, it says. And so in the midst of a culture outside of Israel that is idolatrous, worshiping and serving other gods, and with their own tendency of heart to go that direction and worship and serve other gods as well, this prayer begins by pointing out that there is only one true God, only one Lord, and He is the one we are to praise. And then they go on, as we said in verse 6, and explain these are the things you can give praise for. Verse 6 says, You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all the hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Here they are. They are a sinful people, and they know that. They admit it. They're fasting and mourning over it. They are a sinful people that are in communion with the God that has created all things. Think about that for a minute. That they are a sinful people that are in communion with the one that made the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the one that made the stars of the earth, the one that made all that dwell upon the earth. They are a sinful people and they are in a communion with that God. They're in communion, though they're a sinful people, with the one who sustains and preserves all things, even as a sinful people. Again, try and wrap your head around that. And where does that leave you? Well, it leaves you praising the Lord. So, oh my God. In that case, you're allowed to say that. Oh my God, you're so good. You're amazing. You're so kind to me, a sinner. The prayer continues, verse 7. It says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him up out of the earth of the Chaldeans. You gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittites, and the others. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Well, now beginning in verse 7, the priest, they begin to recount the history of God's goodness to the people. And as you make your way through the next 30 verses or so, what you'll see is they recount events from the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus and the books of Leviticus and Numbers, and they make their way to Joshua and the history of the people in First and Second Chronicles and so on. They just go right through the Word of God and saying, this is what God has done. This is what God has done. This is what God has done. Again, they're giving them a reason to praise. They start with Abram. He's described in verse 7. Now you may recall, Abram was a polytheist. That means he worshipped and served many gods. It, it tells us he lived in the land of Ur of the, of the Chaldees. You can read the story in Genesis chapter 12. And despite the fact that he worshipped and served many gods, God came into his life, pulled him out of that environment, if you will, and said, Abram, of you, I'm going to make a great nation and I'm going to bless them. And Abraham would go on to be the descendants of the Jewish people. Now, why would God do that? Why would God go to a polytheist, worshiping and serve many gods that are out there, and say, I want to do something remarkable in your life and for your descendants that will come after you? Well, the answer to that is the same reason that he did what he did in your life as well. Because God's gracious and God is merciful, and God delights to extend His undeserved favor into each one of our lives. Isn't that awesome? I, I really like the Lord. He's been good to us. And so, here in Abraham's life, God does this because He is merciful. It's His nature to show grace. You need a, worship, you need a reason to worship God? Well, then think back to the many ways that God has go, shown His grace in your life. 
And first and foremost, that he called you to himself, even though you were far away from him when he did so. Verse 9 continues, the priests say, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Jerusalem, excuse me, against Pharaoh and all the servants and all the people of the land. You knew they acted ignorantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. So, so not only did God call Abraham to himself, but just as he promised, from his offspring, a great nation would be birthed. And that's the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Now within 400 years of Abraham, that great nation found itself subjects or slaves of a foreign people, the Egyptians. And they were brought to or they came to a foreign land and God seeing that his people were being afflicted, the scripture tells us that God sent forth a deliverer. This is the book of Exodus, the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. So you need another reason to praise the Lord. Well, you can praise the Lord for his deliverance from bondage. You can praise the Lord for his signs and wonders that he showed to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. You can praise him that he parted the sea, allowing the Jews to cross on dry land. And you can praise him for how he took that same sea and allowed the waters to close up and encompass the Egyptian army. So the account of Abraham, it reminds the Jews from the book of Genesis. The account of Moses here reminds them from the book of Exodus, chapters 1-14, through 14, essentially. They continue, and God's goodness is recounted from another part of the book of Exodus. Notice what it says in verse 12, that a pillar of cloud led them by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that throughout the wilderness journey, they have this cloud by day, and when the cloud moves, the people move. And this fire by night, and when the fire moves or settles in, the people move or they settle in. That's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 13. Verse 13, the priests continue. And again, you need a reason to praise. Well, praise them or praise him that he came down, it says in verse 13, on Mount Sinai. And he spoke from heaven to Moses and he gave them rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. That's what we call the Ten Commandments. Recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20. Look at verse 14. They could praise him that he made known to them, as it says, and you may know to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. That's Exodus 16. Verse 15. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and you brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So for 40 years... As the children of Israel are wandering around the desert trying to get to this promised land from Egypt, we're, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How are we going to know where to go, I mentioned earlier? Well, God would provide for them bread from heaven. That's what we call, it's also known as manna. Exodus chapter 16 reveals to us about manna. And he also provided for them water from the rock. We call that water from the rock. In Exodus chapter 17, he gave that to them as well. So you need a reason to give God praise. Now I'm talking to us here in this room. You need a reason to give God praise. Recount your history. Call to mind the myriad of ways that God has protected you and provided for you and demonstrated His grace in your life. And that's exactly what these priests are doing and leading the people to do as well. Verses, if you will, in this particular passage, 1-15. through 15. Now verse 16 changes directions and things begin or direction things begin to shift a little bit 
in verse 16 because in verse 16, instead of focusing on the work of God, the priests begin to shift and focus on the response of the people to the work of God. So God has shown grace. God has shown mercy. God has revealed his power. He has protected them and preserved them and provided for them. And the people's response to that, what was their response? Look at verse 16. But they, our father, and our fathers, acted presumptuously. And they stiffened their neck, and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck, and they appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. Sad couple verses, isn't it? That God had undeniably proven to his people, himself really, and their response, as it says in verse 16, is to act presumptuously. That God had proven that he was God and that he wanted nothing but good for them and their life. And their response, as it says also in verse 16, is that they stiffened their necks and they began to disobey. Now again, providing an example from the Word, they point out that in Exodus chapter 16, that they are a little frustrated about the food that they have or don't have, and they don't really like it, and they say, you know what, we're going to appoint a new leader for us, and we're going to go back to slavery. It was better for us when we were slaves of a foreign king. And so Exodus 16 reveals that this grumbling takes place amongst them. God had done so much for them, and their response is, yeah, but what have you done lately for me, God? I don't recall a miracle happening yesterday, and that's what I need to keep walking with you. Notice a little further, verse 17. It says, but you are a God that's ready to forgive. You're gracious, you're merciful, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love, and so, Lord, you did not forsake them. The people abandoned the Lord, but the, ref the Lord refused to abandon them. And I'd say that's a pretty good reason to give praise, wouldn't you? All right, fantastic. Now they continue. It says, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them. This is around verse 18 in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You didn't withhold your manna from their mouth and you gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Now, not only did the people grumble and complain, and we want to go back to Egypt, but Exodus, ooh, got excited. Exodus chapter 32 is referenced here in verse 18. And it informs us in Exodus chapter 32 that in one particular instance, Moses took a little bit too long. He said, you know what, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to go talk to God. He went up on a mountain and I'm going to go talk to the Lord. And he took a little bit too long getting back. And so a week goes by, a couple weeks go by, a little bit longer goes by. And they're like, you know, we don't know what happened to this Moses fella. And so they approach Aaron and they say, you know what, Moses is gone. The Lord hasn't done anything special in the last few weeks or so. And so we want new gods. And they give their gold to Aaron and they say, create for us a God that we can worship and serve. And Moses, or Aaron, you know the story. Perhaps you know the story. This is where the golden calf is formed. And they pronounce that this golden calf is the God that delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They've completely moved on from Yahweh, Jehovah. 
And they moved on and worshipped and served their own God. How incredibly blasphemous this particular instance is. Thanks God for everything, but what have you done lately for me? How incredibly blasphemous. How presumptuous of them to do such a thing. Now if somebody did that to you, I know what your response would be to them. Because it would be the same as mine. But how does the Lord respond? Look again at the verses that we read. I'll skip around. You can see it's underlined up top. It says, Even when they did this, you in your great mercies did not forsake them. Isn't that something? Even when they abandoned the Lord and they ascribed all the good things that the Lord had done to a false God that they created with their own hands, God still shows great mercy to them. That despite their blasphemy and despite their sin, God continued to guide them and protect them, as it says there with the pillar of fire. And despite their sin, He gave them His Spirit and He provided them food and water to sustain them for their wilderness journey. So from the days that the Lord called Abram, He promised the people a possession. That's what we call the promised land. A land and a possession. That's Genesis chapter 13. And so with that in mind, look at verse 22. We'll wrap it up here. It says, You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner, and so they took possession of the land. God promised Abram, doing the math, five, six hundred years earlier, and now they're coming into the land of their own. It says, Of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in, they possessed the land, you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and they took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and they were filled and they became fat and they delighted themselves in your great goodness. You hear about people that they, they rent fully furnished apartments and things like that. Well, that's what they, they took over a fully furnished nation. And so they're going in and the fields are already plowed and the olive groves are already there and the, the cisterns are already hewn out of the stone so that they can collect water. Everything is what they need to do. God promised them a land 500 years earlier to Abram and now they are possessing that land. God has made a covenant with Abraham. And it is important to notice that God makes the covenant with Abraham. Usually covenants or contracts are two people. Here, shake. And we shake hands, we make an agreement. But if you go back and you look at the particular covenant that God made with Abram, Abram, Abraham, was asleep when the covenant was drawn up. So God made a covenant with himself to do what he was going to do with Abraham. And, he, and Abraham's job? You just trust me that I'll do it. I'll do everything, you trust me that I'll do it, and we'll call it square. All right, and that's the covenant God made. I'll bring you into the land. I'll give it to you to possess forever. And these priests begin to recall it. We're moving through the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Now they're telling about what happened in the book of Joshua. And again, you need a reason to praise the Lord. Praise God that He is a faithful keeper of His promises. And that's what these guys here are doing. But look at verse 26. Man, God's faithful to keep His promises. But notice the word it begins. Nevertheless... The Jewish people were disobedient and they rebelled against God and they cast His law behind their back and they killed His prophets, the ones who had warned them in order to turn them back from their sins and they committed great blasphemies. And just as they had done before so, 
They began to ignore the Lord and reject the Lord. As this verse says, they even killed the prophets of the Lord. And these priests, they just continue to recount the history of the Jewish people as revealed in the Bible. Now they're into the book of Judges and the book of Chronicles and the book of Kings. And you look at that, and this is not a very positive history of the Jewish people, is it? You know, again, I I think we made the point a little while back. uh, One of our friends was sharing a story at the pastor's conference. He was talking to a Muslim, and he was sharing with the Muslim uh, about the Scriptures and so on. And so this Muslim guy had grown up essentially to hate the Jews. And he began to read the Old Testament, and he, he called our friend up and he says, I know that the Word of God is true. And the, the reason why he said is because if the Jews wrote the Old Testament, they would have made themselves look good. But they look like a horrible people. And the history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament is not glowing at all. It's that these guys, hey, here it is. Like, everything is yours. You can have it. And they want that one tree they're not allowed to have. Or God's going to bless them and they'll turn their back on Him. And so on. It's not a very positive history. But it's one that is marked with repeated failure and God repeatedly reaching His hand out. Let me read quickly here the next few verses. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. In the time of their suffering they cried to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, notice that, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously. And they didn't obey your commandments, but they sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he will live. They instead turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and they would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they wouldn't give you ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. Now we look at that last verse about God said, you know what, then you're going to become a captive. If this is the way it's going to be, I'll present my goodness to you and you'll, you'll take it when you need it. But then when everything is great, you'll just kind of go your own direction and act presumptuously. Then I'm delivering you over to captivity. Now we read that and we think, oh boy, God's mad. That's all God can stand. He, he can't take any more from these people. And now he's going to let them have it. But again, as I think I've said before, that's not God's purpose. The captivity is designed to bring the people to the place where they say, God, we were so dumb. I can't believe we did it again. Would you forgive us? It's bring them to the place of breaking here which is what happens here, so that the people would be in a right place. That's always God's intent. We learn in both the Old Testament and the New. It's quoted in the New Testament book of Hebrews. We learn that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. That's what God does. He disciplines the one that he loves. So that on the backside of the discipline, we could look back and say, you know what, I wouldn't have chosen that, but that's what I needed. I needed that discipline to bring me to this place of where I am with God now. And so God sends them into captivity. We learn that even in his discipline, God is gracious and merciful to each of us. And so verse 31, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Here's a history of a Jewish people. God continuing to reach out his hand, the people continually rebuffing, if you will, that hand. God again and again showing his mercy. And now they are in a place of a spiritual revival. God has stirred their hearts. God still does revivals. He does them in the hearts of individuals. 
He does them in the hearts of churches. He does them in nations. And he does them around the world. But they always begin. Do your history. Study your history of the history of revivals. Old Testament here as well as just in the history more contemporary. It always begins in the hearts of individuals. And God will take an individual here and that will become a pocket and then they'll discover there's a group over there. Same thing. God is happening and God will do a revival. And that's what we're praying would happen. My prayer for you guys, my prayer for myself, is that God would revive our hearts. Individually, first and foremost. That His Word would become alive and that we'll come to His Holy Word eager and expecting and that God will use that to point out His great nature and just how far we fall and that that'll drive us to the place where we say, oh boy, Lord, You're so kind and merciful to me, a sinner. And then that would lead us to praise. And as we praise, people would be drawn as well that are around us. And they'll say, something's different. I need what you have. And then you as a sinner, a cleaned up sinner, can point them as a not yet cleaned up sinner to the Savior who delights to show mercy. And that's what we're praying for. And I'd encourage you to be in prayer for that as well. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the things that we've considered today. And Lord, we know there's a couple more verses. And, and Lord, uh, we just ask as we look over those this week that you would speak to our hearts as well. But Father, you've given us our, our portion this morning. Lord, we've heard from you. We've seen, Lord, your glory in the history of the Jewish people. Just how kind, how merciful you are. We've seen our own nature in the hearts of the Jewish people to act presumptuously, to stiffen our necks, to go our own way. Essentially to say, God, I'll take it from here. And then they wander off in the tendency of our hearts towards sin. And Father, You keep drawing us back. And Father, I pray for us here. If any of us have wandered off into sort of open sin, Lord, this, this morning, Lord, You would speak. And You'd bring us to the place where we say, I'm done with it. Lord, if for those of us that maybe we're in a good spot with you right now, Lord, would you be kind to reveal more of your light, to shed more of your light on every area of our hearts? Expose even a few more, Lord, that you would draw us so close that you even begin to draw us closer and closer and closer. Lord, that's our desire. We never want to settle in our walks with you. We want to know you more and be transformed into your image. And Father, for the one that is here, those that are here that don't yet know you as Savior, Just in the simplicity of things, bring them to the place where they see their need. That sin separates, but you as a Savior restore relationship with our holy God. And bring them to the place where they confess their sin and you as their Savior alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.